0: Well, good morning. Good to see you. Anyone ever see this sign here as you're driving along? Ever seen that before? Yeah? For some of you, it's you know after a really, really long car ride, and you finally see that, and you're not going there. You're going to Grandma's house or somewhere else. But for some of you, you're like, yes, we made it. We're here. There's another sign that is there, and it says this. Here you leave today and enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. Now, when you see that, you think, oh, how cute. That's kind of a neat way of introducing you to the fact that you're in a different place. I secretly suspect that the lawyers of Disneyland said put this up so that you can charge uh, fantasy amounts of money for everything that you walk in and do. So a churro, normally what's a good price for a churro? Just call it out. Dollar. Okay, a dollar, yeah. What do you do at Disneyland? What is it? Anyone know? Six bucks, right? Come on now, every bite, you're going, no, you can't have another bite of my churro. I've invested in this thing. Anyone ever been there when it's raining and you can buy, you know, the plastic tarp? There's nothing to it. There's just this and a hood, but there is Mickey on the back. Anyone know how much those cost? You figured out. If a churro's six bucks, that's going to be a lot of money, right? So everything that you spend in Disneyland is on the uptake for sure. I don't know if you've ever witnessed or been a part of the princess phenomenon. Girls, young and old, when they walk into Disneyland, something absolutely insane happens. They take off their thinking cap, okay, in general, and they put on their tiara, right? (laughs) And they spend happily ever after with 18% on the credit card. I mean, it is nuts to watch what goes on. I didn't get a chance to do this. Some of you can inform me so that second hour can have a bullet point of some of the things that are available. But the last time that we went, fortunately, our daughters were young enough that they were still happy with a churro, right? So that's what we went with. But there are makeovers with princess, autograph sessions with princesses, dance lessons with princess, dress up like a princess, hold the scepter thing with a princess. Now there's bow princess. I mean, everything, right? And, and they don't just do it for little girls. They're like, wow, we can charge three times as much as these adults get in on the scene as well. Here's what I noticed. As you see that, and as you watch the, the princess phenomenon go on with that, what you realize is there's kind of this deeper storyline that that really, really taps into. And everyone in this room has a favorite princess. There's probably a favorite Disney princess in your mind that you're like, Dave, don't ask me because I'm still undecided between these two. Don't make me come to a decision today. But the point is, you've all thought about it. You've all kind of, you all kind of track with one or the other. The deeper, bigger storyline that's really, really common, and Disney's just making money off of it, is this. That we all want to be beautiful. We all want to be noticed. We all want to be pulled from our unnoticed, unappreciated life and world and be seen for the beauty that we really are. And we also want to live happily ever after, right? I mean, these are some of the common themes to a Disney story, some of the common themes of what draws us into that and what and what we want to, to, to do and be about. In a word, it's the word glory, and it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. It's, it's tapped into because it's it's actually, I believe, put there by God. Now, guys here are going, not me. You know, you'll never catch me at a princess tea. Maybe not, right? And actually, I hope not, but One word, sports, right? Sports captures this glory theme as well. Either us doing and performing and outperforming other people and going, coach, just put me in. I want to be that third string guy that comes in and really does a good job and gets promoted to the star. If you're not the one doing it, you're watching movies about that or you're cheering on people who will get paid a ton of money to do that and perform for us every single weekday of you know I mean every single day there's some kind of sport going on. And some of you are like, well I'm not a sports guy. Video games, jobs, you know, we can just go on. Cars, your muscles, your title, your family, your grades. It's either to be the best, to achieve, to outdo other people, or another track with that is this. Those who just weren't good at sports or weren't good at some of these things or don't like those things, what do they choose to do? They choose to be the best at being the worst at all of that. We always had these kids in youth group that were like, some are like, you know, almost at fisticuffs over who won Kajabi Can Can, you know, some youth game or something. And others are over here, it's like, they're they're going to intentionally do everything in their power not to participate in anything. And then some aren't trying to be the worst at it or the best at it, they're trying to be the best at not caring who's the best or the worst. So anyway, in all these veins, what it is, you want to find your niche, you want to kind of be noticed and kind of in where you're at. I want you to turn in your Bible to Esther. Esther is Job minus one. So you just go to Job and hang a left by by one street and you'll find it. And we're going to look at Esther this morning and take a look at a real beauty queen, a real princess who was observed and admired, catch this, by the entire kingdom. Observed and admired. People wanted to be in her shoes. But as you would imagine, it's a little different than the Disney version, Real life tends to be a little different than the Disney version. If they were to make this into a movie, they would either cut massive parts of it or really alter it to fit it into the kind of Disney motif because it wouldn't quite fit as well. And here it is right in the middle of our Bible. special thanks to Miriam this week who drew our picture. And this is on the cover of your bulletin. She let me know that this is the king and queen, and they're talking about going to dinner, and they're right in front of each other, and she didn't know how to draw them facing each other, so they're just side by side, which is actually good staging for any play. So that's what they're doing, and the chair on the left, the king politely left his scepter over there because he didn't want to poke the queen with the scepter. So that's the gray thing, sitting over there on the chair as they discuss dinner, a very common experience, except we don't usually wear crowns when we do it. There's a certain pastime, if, if you look at the, with regards to princesses and other kinds of celebrity sports, you know, male celebrity, female celebrity kinds of things that run the whole gamut. Um, and the, the time, you know, pa- national pastime is no longer baseball, it's, it's stargazing. Okay, Very few in America, I think, are really, really into actual stargazing. But what I'm talking about is following blogs, following posts, reading magazines. As long as you see at the source, you're looking for pack of gum or something, and there's always the tabloids right there as you're you're checking out. As long as those keep selling, what you know is that there still is a massive market for people that want to know every single thing, who's rising as a star, who just fell off the wagon as a star. I mean, we we just have this insatiable lust for that for whatever reason. Here's what's interesting. Some, within the sound of my voice, may rise to fame, superstardom, or superpower. Someone might. Someone might, in this very room, rise to that position. Esther's story, a big part of Esther's story is to remind us of this. Don't stop, if you are a stargazer in some way, shape, or form, don't stop at looking at the stars, either physical or superstar celebrities. Look beyond them. The stars point to something. God's already, I mean, Rob's already alluded to it, that we serve a huge God. And that's one of the giant messages behind the story of Esther. Whether in pain, remember Job from last week, or fame with Esther this week, God invites participation. So whether you're in pain today, or whether you are, maybe even unbeknownst to you, on your way to superstardom in some way, shape, or form, God is still working, and God is still wanting to have you participate with him. Now, God loves the rich and famous. One of the things that can go on in a Christian message, and this has has gotten really, really popular lately. When I was going to college, there was a big debate going on. There's always little debates within the church and, and Christendom, you know. But one of the messages going out, it's almost a Robin Hood message right now, where God loves the poor and the outcast and the down and out. And if you were wealthy whether by means of your own good fortune or your own hard work or a family inheritance, you might get the message. It might be possible to receive the message, wow, Christianity is a religion for the have-nots and the outcasts and those who aren't doing well off and aren't accepted by society. Do you see how that message could be communicated? Now, is that true? No, it's not true. God loves the rich and the famous. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. Right? Jesus is talking at one point to, a lot of your Bibles just give the heading, to the rich, young ruler. Okay, there it is, right? He's got the fame, he's got the power, he's got the money. And Jesus talks to him, and the guy comes, and he's asking about what to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says in Mark 10, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said. And then he gives his answer. You probably know it. Jesus notices, loves, and speaks into the rich and famous. Now, I know for some of you in here, you're going, well, big what for them? You know, like, you're thinking, how does this apply to me? On the one hand, we won't get into this too much, but on the one hand, you could look at every person in this room and in a worldwide picture, if we could have 10 representatives that basically represent different regions of the world, you know who the rich and famous are? All of us in this room. It's just true that we always know there's someone above us with more stuff, more things, more power, more whatever. There's always someone that's, that's below us, in a sense. And so, to be thinking this, here's what I want to do. I don't want us to tune out and go, well, okay, if God ever blesses with me, I'll go back and listen to the podcast. But clearly, this isn't me right now. The fact that we changed clothes or made a decision about what shoes to wear indicates we are the rich and famous. Really are, to, to some degree. Esther was certainly both, but it didn't start that way. Here's Esther's invitation. If you're taking notes, there's nothing to fill in, but her invitation was to be a star. That was her invitation by God. Now, the Bible records some amazing women. We know that the women were the last at the cross. They were the first ones to show up at the tomb, at the resurrection of Jesus. They were the first to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. They were first to witness to the Jews. They attended the first prayer meeting of this new baby church in the book of Acts. They were first to greet Christian missionaries in Europe, namely Paul and Silas. And the very first European convert to Christianity was a woman. Some are not even named, and some are massively famous. If you're Esther and you have a book of the Bible named after you, you're pretty famous. This is the best-selling book for every country for every year since the Gutenberg Press put it into motion. That's a pretty famous name to have, that you own a piece of that, that you're used by God in that, and you have a book named after you. Listen to Psalm 147 in light of Esther's fame and glory that was given to her. Psalm 147 says this, He determines, talking about God, the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their name. Now this is true in the physical universe, and that's what this passage of the Bible is talking about. You always want to take it in context. But it's also true for those who kind of shatter through the barrier and rise to superstardom in culture. God determines the number of those people, and He's the one who gives them their name. By the way, one guess as to, wor- as to what the word Esther, what the name Esther means. It means star. Today, next hour, we're going to get to see the testimony of a young girl who is going to stand up in the waters of baptism behind us and get baptized. Little Lauren P.A. is going to get baptized, and we're super excited about it. And as we do that, It's amazing to see how through the life of one small girl, Jesus can be honored, Jesus can be glorified through a simple testimony, through a simple act of obedience to just go and reenact the death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. And from the book of Esther, we get to glean from the beautiful obedience of this queen, Esther. Here's just a couple of things about the book of Esther. It's something called a historical narrative, which means this. It intersects three things, theology, history, and aesthetics. Theology means it teaches us something about God. Did you know that God isn't mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther? There's no miracles in the book of Esther. There's no angels in the book of Esther. There's no mention of law or anything that you're supposed to be doing as a Christian or as a Jew, people of God, Old Testament, in the book of Esther. But what we see theologically, one of the massive things to keep in mind as you read the story of Esther is to see the sovereignty of God, that God rules over everything, even where he's not named and mentioned, and in the providence of God. The hand of the providence of God is just seen over and over in this book. And if you keep those two things in mind, you're kind of getting a sense about the theology of what's being taught there. Historical meaning this that these are actual people in an actual kingdom in actual places that you could do archaeological finds and they have and they've pieced together here's the people and reign and rule and time that this happened and then aesthetic is this it's a book that's concerned with um, how it's it's written and it's written uh, Christian or non-Christian this is held up as a literary masterpiece. M. Night Shyamalan, is that how you say his name? Uh, Some of you remember some of his movies from from a few years back. He had a certain style to his movies, didn't he? And after you saw one of his movies, what you knew is this. On the last scene, you're going to see something that's going to flip the whole story, and you're going to have to reinterpret almost everything else that kind of goes on with that. I think that his great, 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 great grandma or grandpa wrote this book. Because this book carries with it almost the exact same kind of thing. There's this poetic and artistic just flip in some things that go on, where you think one thing's going on, and it just changes completely. There's about a 10-year span from, from the first chapter to the last chapter of Esther. A fairly short read. I'd encourage you to read it this week if you haven't. So it's covering about 10 years. It's fit biblically into the times of Ezra right around chapter 6 or 7 of the book of Ezra. All right, take a look at the screen for a second. History lesson's almost over. By the way, we need to put an APB out on my laser pointer. My laser pointer is missing. And I know you all love it when it's Laser Pointer Sunday. (laughs) And I'm hunting around for this thing. I mean, how cool would it be to have my laser pointer right now? But I can't, so you guys just kind of squint and look. Let me just show you. This is a modern Google map, but the Persian Empire is India, okay? Find India over here all the way, keep going all the way around, to Ethiopia. See the little horn of Africa? That's a big kingdom. That's the Persian Empire under King Xerxes right around this time period. And I've got the little dot right around where Susa is going to be, right around where the capital, where the center of it all is going to be. I bring that up because that's where this book is talking about. That's the scope of the kingdom. When when we say that that she's the the queen, sometimes the news shows up that some country has a new queen. And I confess, I look at that and go, that's a country? Like, is that real? It's such a tiny country or it just, you know, birthed like a few years ago. I don't even know that the the, the country existed, much much less that they had a new queen. We're not talking about that kind of country. We're talking about a vast empire. This is the Persian Empire. That's where this story takes place and what it's talking about. All right, that's Esther the book. Enough of that. Esther the person. Her position, I'll keep this just fairly short, but, but I, I need to set up a little bit of context. Her position is opened up to be the queen, um, essentially because the previous queen refused to be a trophy while King Xerxes, there's a lot of heavy drinking in the book of Esther. Heavy drinking. I don't know if you missed Rob's little quip there, but there are feasts galore going on. Parties galore going on. By the way, a little aside not everything that you read in the Bible is to model your life after. Okay? So, heavy drinking and decision making. Bad idea. Okay? There's a lot of that going on. A lot of it. The other thing, the way to get a new wife when your wife won't be a trophy person for you and your drinking buddies after you, in a rage, kind of kick her out, is not to go have a giant. This is reality show 101. Just go have a giant reality show of getting all the young virgins in the country, and let's parade them before the king and have a contest. That's essentially what goes on with this. Okay. Now I did a little quick thing. There's there's a new reality show. I mean, this will blow your mind. I mean, I was hoping for just some little kind of funny quip. This was like you know, target bullseye. I I just I think I googled the top reality shows of 2012 or 13 because all I know is about is you know ones from 10 years ago. So I googled that. There is evidently a new reality show. Okay, brace yourself. Are you sitting down? Yeah, you all are. It's called Shahs on Sunset. And it's basically the Beverly Hillbillies, but for a rich Persian family. And I thought, boy, this nails it. I mean, this, this is it right here. And evidently, it's just, you know, blown up on Twitter. Who knows? Uh, but, anyways, some of you watch that. You can come fill me in on what it's about. Not that I need to know. So there's a contest, chapter 2, for a new wife. And as I read that, I thought, boy, you know, this whole story, by the way, there's so many parallels to, to modern day life. There's a king that turns on his own people and would kill people. Syria's in the news right now for, for just such a thing. There's genocide that's going on. Who, who would do that? There's a guy in here, we're going to be introduced to him, who's the, the beta version of, of Hitler, basically. He goes in and tries to exterminate an, an entire group of people. And then, when you see King Xerxes come in and have a contest to see, you know who he's going to do, who he's going to have as his new wife, I look at that and I think, "This wow! That is so similar to the storyline that you see, where people midway through their life, midlife crisis, decide to trade for a different woman, for a different spouse, for a different career, and all that's different." is that the person doing that in today's day and age just lacks the scope and power and funding that Xerxes had. But I think if we had that same amount, we would be capable, in today's day and age, of the exact same thing. Hard to sneeze with a lapel mic on and not make it awkward. I'll ruin the story for you. Esther wins. Okay? Esther wins the contest. And we're not sure that's a great thing, but she wins anyways. This is Miss Universe, American Idol, something else, all rolled into one. The whole nation's watching, there's glitter, she wins the deal, she's the new queen, that's what happens. Haman's in the story, he's the villain. He literally, as you read the book of Esther, please read it and read Haman, and then have a second Bible open with the book of Proverbs there, okay? He is the walking embodiment example of every negative proverb you can think of. I was reading Proverbs with my son last week. And he said, you know, I've noticed something, just an aside. I've noticed that Proverbs is a lot of opposites. A lot of, you know, the wise man does this, but the fool does this. I go, yeah, good observation. We're tracking. That's good. Haman is the but the fool guy. The proud does this. He's the negative examples of these different Proverbs that you'll read. Augustine, as one of the church fathers, he, he said this, pride is like a mother who is pregnant with all other sins, when you read the story of Haman, what you realize his fundamental struggle, his fundamental barb in his life, his fundamental demon, is pride. Everything else flows from that. He's got a lot of other bases covered in the sin camp, but pride's the one that really is his root problem. He's so prideful that because of Mordecai, one guy who's not going to give him honor that he feels he deserves, he's going to take out his rage and his punishment on that entire race of people, not just on the one person. All right, let me give you the big dilemma, and then we'll just start to to read snippets of it to see how the story unfolds. The big dilemma is this, that God's chosen people, the Jews, are caught in this plot that is coming for state-funded, state-sponsored, it's legal, genocide of them. That they will be killed. They will be wiped off the face of the earth as a people. And then they have, uh, they have caught wind of it. A couple of people have caught wind of it to, to such a degree that they have something that they can do about it. When you think about Esther and who she is, turn to, to Esther 2 and look at verse 7. The book really focuses somewhat on Esther, but Esther isn't the center thing. We know from our past stories, the hero of the book of Esther, even though not named, is God. Always. Does he use Esther? Yes, but he also uses wicked Haman. He uses perverted King Xerxes as much as he uses Mordecai. So God's the hero of the story. It's really a book about God. But King is mentioned Tons of times. But it's not King Jesus. It's not King King of the universe. It's this wicked King Xerxes that is being talked about. But I want to show you, I want to turn our attention toward this individual Esther and some of the ways God used her. Esther chapter 2, verse 7 says this. It says, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, the guys just heard, wow, so she's beautiful. You know, that's that's where guys, when they heard that, that's what they read. The gals heard, oh, she was an orphan, but now she's become a daughter through means of adoption. And how pretty is she? So they're hearing both of it. The guys, you know, I need to tell you guys, there, there's two parts to it. Um... So that's that's just like, though, the 411 on you. That's like, here's your social security. Here's your height, weight. Here's some external things. Those things matter to the story to some degree. But what I want to do is focus now in on her character. Character is shown by our actions and our words, isn't it? We've used this metaphor of footprints. We can say that we do this or that, but as we're walking through life, we have to just stop at some point and look back and say, where have my footprints been? So if I say I love and worship God, there's footprints that track with that. If I say that I love my wife or my husband, there are footprints that do that. If there are footprints that say, I am pursuing a career that honors God, that supports God, and isn't about the money, there are footprints behind you that say yes or no to what our mouths say. So our character is revealed by words and actions. I want you to be encouraged this morning because it really doesn't start off all that well. And Esther is far from perfect. What we see really is Esther, who is with some other people, they're in a far off country, away from God. The whole reason she's even there, she's been dishonest and conniving even in, in hiding her identity as being with the people of God. So she doesn't start off as the Iwana Gold Star you know, Christian superstar member. And so God chose her. She really starts off in a place where she's not doing super well. She's essentially living a lie. You can see it in Esther 2.10. The big turning point that begins to reveal Esther's character, she begins to get squeezed, and this is where her character is going to come out, happens in chapter 4. So if you're following along, I'll flip over to 4, and we'll pick it up at 14. If this were a trailer, it would say, on the eve of catastrophic atrocity, one woman must risk it all for her people. I mean, that's, you know, the music's going to swell. That's the hook to kind of get you to come see Esther. It's all right here in Esther 4.14. 4, uh, it says this. This is Mordecai, her adopted father, who is coming to her and making it clear what Haman's plot is and what is at stake. And he's asking her to go and do something that is not only against the law, but it's quite possibly life-threatening. That is to go and seek a presence with the king when he hasn't asked for you to be in his presence. That's worthy of death as this. Mordecai is coming to her and saying, Esther, do you ever wonder why you won the contest? Do you ever wonder why God has allowed you to esteem and rise to the level of, of absolute Stratosphere, superstar, everyone in the kingdom knows your name. Could it not be for such a time as this? And do you notice that he appeals to something close to her? It's not the people of God. She doesn't, she doesn't even identify with them. She hasn't publicly identified with, with the Jews yet. But isn't it different when it's, when it's your own kin? Your own family is going to die, Esther. God could raise someone else up, but could it be That you were raised up for such a time as this. The message is this shine bright for God by rescuing his people, Esther, right now. There's an urgent season. Do this now. Look at verse 16, chapter 4. Esther's response. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, that's the capital city, and hold a fast on my behalf. Fasting, for those you don't know, is a spiritual discipline where you withhold food and or water in an effort to seek God. Not to pay God back, but to seek him. When your stomach grumbles, then you ought to pray and seek after and hunger after the things of God rather than physical food. It's still a worthwhile, valid exercise, spiritual discipline to be incorporating in our lives. Go and call a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, you have to let the story unfold as it unfolds, or else you just kind of miss things. At this point, this is an insanely courageous act on Esther. She doesn't know how it's going to turn out. All she knows is that she's, she's probably been witness to the fact that people have sought an audience with her husband and because he was in a bad mood that day, didn't like the message, or didn't like the way the guy's hair fell on his forehead, off with his head. She was going to go do something illegal and potentially life-threatening. What does she do when that comes to her? Here's what she does. She begins to worship. That's what fasting is. She's seeking God through fasting. So Esther turns and starts to worship. It's the first time in the book, we're four chapters in, that we have any sense God being sought, of his will being hungered for, and yet she just picks up and starts to do it. You also see in her character that she's one who takes action. She's one who's self-denying. She had it made in the kingdom. What she knows is, I mean, here's what she's weighing. That's a lot of people to die needlessly, but... I like my neck, you know, and I don't want, I don't want to reap the, the harm of this. I've got a pretty sweet gig right now. Yeah, I'm kind of living a lie, but, uh, you know, if, if, if she wanted to, she could have kept herself comfortable, and instead she risks it. Flip over to Esther five eight. Esther decides to do this in a banquet, but she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do the the thing the king has said. When she goes and seeks an audience with her husband, the king, he's asking her, what is it that you want? He wants to hear from her. And so the way that she responds is she decides to, to do it in a feast. What we see in her is that she's tactful, We see that she's patient. We see that she has an understanding that timing is important in things. She says, wow, I'm putting out a big ask here. I'm putting out a giant risk by revealing what's going to happen. Finally, the time is right. Esther reveals this plot that Haman has to kill all of the Jews. Flip over to, to Esther 7. We'll skip near to the end here. And in Esther 7.3, it says this. Then the queen answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. She invites both of them to the party. Haman's second in command. He's the right-hand guy of the king. He's the one that goes and makes sure that things get done while king is trying to decide what to do for dinner with his queen, not poking her with the scepter. Okay, That's who Haman is. They're invited to this feast. She says, man, I wouldn't even trouble this with you if our entire people were just sold into slavery. But they're wanting to kill us. And when the king realizes, wow, you're one of them, and that means someone's taking out honor from me by taking you out, who is this? Now, mind you, Haman's here thinking what? Haman's here thinking, yippee, I get a date with the king, and the queen of the giantest empire in the world at this time, and it's just me. Aren't I noble and honorable? And all of a sudden, this news comes out of who it is, and Esther's character again, a courageous truth-teller, says, here's the guy right here. It's Haman. He's a foe. He's an enemy. She doesn't stop at tattling, though. She presses the matter to make sure that right action is taken right now. She sees this as a window right now. She knows a guy like Haman is going to suddenly scheme and figure out a way around this. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king had held out the golden scepter to Esther, that's his means of saying, yes, I accept you, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king and if I have found favor in the sight, if this thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letter, the, the, the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the province of the king. So not only is she a telltale, that says, there, I've kind of done my part. Phew, he didn't get mad at me. I'm still safe. She then says, here's the action plan. There's one person who can, who, can, who can advise the king right now. We see the king constantly needing advice. He's constantly bringing people around him uh, to help make a decision. So Esther comes in and says, not only here's the problem, here's the solution to it. I'll tell you, as a leader, not of the Persian Empire, but of a church, when people come to me and communicate problems that are going on in church, I'm really appreciative of that. Because I can't possibly know all the things that are going on, and I really see that as a blessing when, when I hear news of what's going on, when I hear that there's discord over here. Sometimes I say, wow, I had no idea those two were at odds. I had no idea that was a problem going on. It's a double blessing when that is said with humility and grace and with a spirit of, And what can I do? Is there anything I can do to help with that? I'm triply blessed when someone says, here's a problem going on. And might I suggest, I've thought a lot about this. Might I suggest we take this course of action? I would submit to you and the elders and whatever you guys decide. But I think this course of action might be the way to go. Man, I tell you, as a leader, I'm thrilled at that. Because all of a sudden we have someone who's, who's not just raising the issue, but says, here's a solution, here's the right solution for it. That's a great ally and teammate to have around. Many of you are in leadership positions, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Here's Esther, who doesn't stop at just saying, that guy's doing mean things. And and. and and That just becomes a headache for the king. Instead, she says this, and here's the action plan to stop it, to change what's going on. It's true in the life of Esther, it's true in our lives, that crises that come up are difficult, but they're massive opportunities. They're massive opportunities for sweeping change and reform. They're massive opportunities for you to be tested and to kind of see what comes out. For two people who were lukewarm at best in their faith, Esther and Mordecai, this crisis had a way of triggering their faith. It had a way of sparking in and saying, and it's time to take a stand and be for the people of God. Once again, I believe this is just a gracious message for those who are sitting here today who are just lukewarm. Do you believe in God? Yes. Are you walking by his ways? Well, the verdict's still out on that. I'm still, you know, I mean, things are busy right now. And sometimes it's on my to-do list. So I'm going to get to that whole thing. I am might even try fasting. For people who are that, and there's a lot of people that sit in churches that are that, the gracious message is this. Don't even wait for a giant crisis of sure annihilation of your people, although that would be a good time to act. Just get up and start seeking after God. Get up and start doing the right thing. Get up and start doing what you know to do. Esther put a fast on and sought the Lord. There's a giant caution in here. Cuidado. What does that mean? Don't answer, front row. (laughs) is like, I know this one! What does it mean? Caution, right? I gave the hint away with the exclamation mark. Right, that's Spanish for caution. And when you see something like that, your brain is saying, Warning! There's danger ahead. There's immediate action that I should be, there's some urgency here, I should be paying attention to what's going on. Here's the big caution. Esther had a change of heart. She turned over her position and her status and her comfort so that she could glorify God and do something good with it. But Haman had no such change of heart. Most of us think, man, I think I'd be satisfied if I was second in command only to the king, to that vast Persian empire. I think I'd be good with that. I, mean, I want more power and title and status than I have right now, but I'd be good with that. Chances are, you wouldn't. We always want what's next. We always want what's around the corner. Haman wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted more. He used his little glory to shine on himself. Let me give you just a little snippet of some of the Proverbs that he embodies for us so that we can kind of get a sense of this. Proverbs 11.2, pride leads to disgrace. Talk about the providence of God in the book of Esther. Just write down Esther 6, because Esther 6 is a chapter where we see some crazy coincidence, which whenever you think crazy coincidence, think God's providence. That's really all it is. It's the non-Christian word for God's providence. Wow, what a crazy coincidence. The Christian goes, you mean providence, right? Because we know, we know there's a sovereign God and that things don't happen just by chance. So the king has a sleepless night. Can't sleep, so he decides to read the chronicles, the histories. Hey, bring me the histories. As he's reading through there, he reads about this guy Mordecai that averted a hit on his life. And he says to his people there, he says, "Hey, whatever got, whatever happened to this guy? Did we ever do anything to to say thanks to this guy?" And they said, uh, "No, no, we haven't." And so then oh, we just have to read it. Turn turn to six four really quick. So Haman coming to the king, and here's what he's coming to ask. He's coming to make the ask to take out Mordecai hey, I've built this really cool death machine in my backyard. It's 75 feet high. I think it'll be a cool thing. Can I take out this guy? That's what he's in the court. He's kind of straightening his tie, reviewing his notes, kind of finalizing his preparation of how he's going to say this to the king. Okay? Now, coincidence or providence? You decide. King has a sleepless night. He all of a sudden is thinking about Mordecai, who saved his life. Okay? And then he says this. Who's in the court? Look at verse 4 of chapter 6. And the king said who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he built in his backyard. And the king's young man told him Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself Prideful people are focused on themselves all the time. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? That's pride. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, hmm. I haven't thought about this much, but I do have a list. Here it is. Let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. This is like game time worn jersey. And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You should throw a parade for this guy. That's what you should do. You should give him all this stuff and call out all the attention on him. That's what you should do. And just showing that God has a massive sense of humor, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you've said, bring that whole list, and do to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So whose job is it now to throw the parade and do all of this? It's Haman's! Look at the proverb, pride leads to disgrace. Those who are clawing to be noticed get noticed sometimes for the wrong reasons. The last day of Haman's life was his worst day. Some of you have been near people who've died. The last day of their life was not the worst day of their life. It was a glorious entry into their reward. But for a wicked, evil man like Haman whose little glory is just trying to shine on himself. His last day truly was his worst day. Proverbs 5.21 says this, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Life's going well for Haman. He's the second most powerful guy, but he was found out. And in a moment, his life flipped completely around. And what he thought was the top was actually the bottom. And what he thought was his own glory became his shame. Haman gets found out and is pronounced to be hung, to be killed on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai the Jew. And the sentence of Haman is this. He died because of his sin. And when we see the judgment handed out to Haman, that ought to be a giant warning for all of us. A dire warning for all of us. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. That was Haman. Proverbs 5.21 says this For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. This isn't for popularity votes, but it's because I love you. Some in this room are Haman's. Some have your lives going along really, really well. Your sin hasn't gone before you and entered into the room before you and announced itself before you. It might be trailing behind you like Haman. It might be a week off, ten years off, or it might be tomorrow off. But Haman's life in an instant was flipped. And the wages of his sin is death. And that ought to be a warning to every single one of us. Is there good news? Of course there is. This is a gospel preaching church. Jesus hung publicly, became a spectacle on a cross. This gallows that he built was a precursor kind of to to the crucifixion as a means of death. Jesus hung hung on that cross so that we wouldn't have the wages of our sin be death. Jesus became the shame and the disgrace so that we don't have to take on the public shame and disgrace of that. His death death abated the good king's wrath, similarly to how Haman's abated an evil king's wrath. We get to trade all of our sin for all of his holiness. Take a look at this. That's another proverb. Uh, take a look at this. This is a high school logo for their ministry. It's called Alioth. And um, I want to ask you a question. If, if you were to pick one of the stars, that's the Big Dipper constellation. If you were to pick one of the, one of the stars there, what's, what's the best star to be? What's, what's, what's the best one to be? Tip of the hand. Tip of the hand okay, that, that might be a common one. Yeah. What's the worst one to be? Okay, so you can discuss this in your community groups this week. No, not really. Here's the point of this. This is a dumb conversation. I mean, isn't it really? Who cares? I mean, does it really matter? It it doesn't. And that's the point. Alioth is the name given to one of the stars of the Big Dipper. Who cares which one it is? Who cares the name of that star? Here's the point. It's not about that star. That star is a part of a bigger picture that paints the constellation of the Big Dipper. You say, well, that's not even my favorite constellation. I like the belt guy or whatever. You know, <laughs> cool. You know, pull out your app and tweet about it. But, but the Big Dipper is, is just a part of what? A giant night sky. That's a part of what? That's a part of an entire universe. That's a part of what? That's a part of a giant sign pointing to a creator. Do you see how dumb it is to get hung up on that one star? To not see past the glory of that one little star? So whether you are idolizing, looking toward, or really enamored with someone, or yourself, Esther says, man, look beyond the glory, the little glory of the stars, and see the bigger picture. Fame and power and beauty are fleeting and redeemable. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. God used the beauty of Esther to create something beautiful. He made her that way. All of us have features that we go, God, if you could have just kept this a little smaller or made that a little bigger or a little more of that or a little less over here, right? We all have like a little checklist. Isn't it true that God could have done that? Of course he could have, but he didn't. So accept your DNA, accept your created self, right? And realize that whether you're considered beauty, a beautiful or plain or whatever it might be, it's fleeting, but God can can also redeem that for something great. Psalm 4916, I won't take the time to read it, but just read it. It's a, it's a warning to the rich. It's a warning to those who see their glory as uh, something big. The Book of Esther embodies Romans 828, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to to his purpose. We have a huge God. When you think Esther in the future, I want you to think the hand of God's providence and his sovereignty. That's what I want you to think about. He's not even mentioned in the book, but he's all over the book. From a sleepless night of a king to to raising up Esther. Long before, by the way, she was not thinking, I need to really do some good cosmetic work because I want to glorify God one day with my beauty. That's not what she was thinking. And yet God raised her up long before she had a heart That turned toward him. Perhaps one of the most common prayers after Father, forgive me is about God's will. As in, what's next, God? What are you doing in my life, God? Here's my challenge to you What if you stop praying, what do you want me to do? And you start praying like this Father, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then the next short little prayer is this. God, give me the grace to join you. Give me the grace to just join in with what you are doing. Do you see how different that is? What do you want me to do? What are you doing? Isn't this what Jesus did? Didn't he say and do only what he saw the Father doing? That's perfect obedience. That's what it looks like to to walk in those ways. As the band comes up, I don't want you to miss this. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 4. Don't be distracted by the band walking up. Listen to the scriptures right now. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, Paul writing to a church, as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Recognize that you are one of the little stars. Even if all those around you regard you as a superstar, remember that you're one of the little stars. And then though, rather than let that be some putting down thing, here's what I would say, twinkle for all your worth. Shine as bright as you can be all the time for God's glory. That's where he needs you. That's where he wants you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you can take suffering and side stories and marginalized people that the world will never even know the name of and use them for your glory. And, Father, you can take kings and queens and superstars and the rich and the beautiful and you can cause them to bend a knee to worship their Creator and to submit all of that to be redeemed by the Master. God, this morning I pray that you would help us see a giant view of who you are. I pray that this would help put our dreams and our problems in some kind of perspective. God, as a church, as a community group, as an individual, would you grow us up in passionately seeking what you are doing, longing to just join you and be a part of it. God, we love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.